0: everyone welcome back to the layman's historian episode 15 the keltoy the terror of civilization before we begin today's episode i need to address some serious concerns i know you have those of you who are particularly observant may have noticed that since the last episode the name of the podcast has changed from the layman's historian to, wait for it, the lay man's historian. I felt that replacing the plural lay men with the singular lay man made more sense and simply looked better as a title. As shocking as this revelation is, I hope that the substitution of an A for the E will not prove to be too controversial in the coming days. Last time, We swept across the sandy shores of North Africa with its Libyan tribes, including the Numidians, Mare, and Garamatines. We also discussed the mountainous forests of Iberia with its cunning and warlike people who lived in well-developed city-states. Today, we continue our overview of the Mediterranean by gazing northward into the region known in antiquity as Gaul to discuss one of the most feared peoples of the ancient world, the Keltoi. I recommend that you take another look at the map posted on the website to follow along. As always, I have posted a link in the description. First mentioned by Greek writers around the 5th century BC, the Keltoi inhabited a significant portion of northern Europe, including what is today France, the Low Countries, Lower Germany, Austria, and Northern Italy. However, as we shall see, the Celtoi did not remain confined to these boundaries, embarking on migrations and conquests all across the Mediterranean from Spain to Asia Minor. The Romans called the largest tribe of Celtoi or Celts Gauls. Likewise, they termed the homeland of this tribe Gaul, which roughly corresponds to modern-day France. Later, this region would be seen as the center stronghold of Celtic life and culture, and the name Gaul would often be applied to all the Celtic peoples, regardless of their actual place of origin. Thus, though not all Celts came from Gaul, For this episode, I will use the term Gauls and Celts interchangeably just for convenience's sake. The Greek geographer Strabo describes Gaul as being mostly plains interspersed with hills and as having many great navigable rivers. Even in antiquity, these rivers served as highways throughout Gaul, and Strabo reports that a traveler could easily make his way through the land Via these water routes. Besides the staple products of the Mediterranean, such as olives and wine, which were primarily grown in the south, Gaul produced a substantial number of grain, and despite nearly constant warfare, the land supported a very dense population. This population of Celts was always one to make an impression, for good or ill. They were much taller than most of the other Mediterranean peoples, standing significantly higher than the Romans in particular, who were on the whole a very short people. The Celts were mostly fair-skinned, big-boned, and brawny, with light blonde or red hair, which they wore long and often dyed extravagant colors or bleached with lime water. Many ancient authors delight in giving us colorful descriptions of their physical appearance. Our old friend, Diodorus Siculus, describes them in the following way. The Gauls are tall of body, with rippling muscles, and white of skin, and their hair is blonde, and not only naturally so, for they also make it their practice by artificial means to increase the distinguishing color which nature has given it. For they are always washing their hair in lime water, and they pull it back from the forehead to the nape of the neck, with the result that their appearance is like that of satyrs and pans, since the treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the mane of horses. Some of them shave the beard, but others let it grow a little, and the nobles shave their cheeks, but they let their moustaches grow until it covers the mouth. Not to be outdone, the Greek historian Polybius insists that the height, physical magnificence, and fearlessness in war of the Celts made them extremely dangerous and capable of waging terrible wars. Due to their physicality and strength, the Gauls were rightly feared by nearly all of the southern nations but it was not merely the Celtic men who were feared. A late Roman historian gives us a vivid, if somewhat undignified, portrait of a typical Gallic lady. Almost all Gauls are tall and fair-skinned, with reddish hair. Their savage eyes make them fearful objects. They are eager to quarrel and excessively truculent. When, in the course of a dispute, Any of them calls in his wife, a creature with gleaming eyes much stronger than her husband. They are more than a match for a whole group of foreigners, especially when the woman, with swollen neck and gnashing teeth, swings her great white arms and begins to deliver a rain of punches mixed with kicks, like missiles launched by the twisted strings of a catapult. What a lovely lady. Even apart from their ferocious wives, the Gauls, with their great stature, prodigious strength, and reckless courage, made a deep impression on the psyche of the Greeks and Romans. Although genial and generous at times, they were notorious for, to quote Polybius, immoderate drinking and general overindulgence. Due to their rough-and-tumble existence, They were often viewed with suspicion and distaste by their southern neighbors, a living symbol of all that was uncivilized and unrefined, the definition of barbarian. Yet, these so-called barbarians could organize serious raids and sometimes even full-scale invasions that could threaten the very existence of their more civilized opponents. As we have already seen in the previous episode, groups of Celts had crossed the Pyrenees and established a realm in central Spain well before the 300s BC. Long before the rise of Rome, Gallic invaders had seized the Po Valley of northern Italy from the Etruscans, incidentally founding what would become the city of Milan in the process. Gallic tribesmen had pushed further south in the 4th century B.C., sacking Rome herself under their chieftain Brennus in 390 B.C. One famous event during this sack scarred the Roman psyche so severely that it determined the course of their relations with the Gauls ever after. During the sack, the surviving Romans negotiated to buy off the Gauls with 1,000 pounds of gold. When they showed up with the money, and had it measured in the Gallic scales, they suspected that the scales were rigged in favor of the Gauls. When the Gallic chieftain Brennus heard their complaints, he took his sword and threw it onto the scales, crying, Via victus, which means, Woe to the Vanquished. Such an insult the Romans would not be quick to forget nor would they ever forgive the Gauls for this affront. As we shall see, the Romans as a people were almost incapable of accepting defeat, and to have suffered such shameful treatment at the hands of those who they considered to be barbarians was an outrage that only blood could wipe out. We will likely touch briefly on the lengthy and brutal wars between the Gauls and Romans in future episodes, but it is important to understand the hostile state of relations between these two peoples to see why the Gauls viewed the Carthaginians as natural allies against the Romans during the Punic Wars. Not that the Romans were the only people who suffered at the hands of the Gauls, the Greeks also often sustained reverses against Gallic raiders and invaders, and one famous expedition in 279 BC, under another chieftain named Brennus, saw the Celts destroy a Macedonian army and kill the reigning king before being turned back by a coalition of Greek city states at the sacred city of Delphi. Following this, Another group of Celts crossed the Dardanelles into Asia Minor, first as mercenaries, then as conquerors. Here, they founded the city of ancyra modern-day Ankara in central Turkey, in the region that would come to be known as Galatia. Interestingly enough, although they adopted certain aspects of Greek civilization, The Galatians maintained their own distinct Celtic language and culture. They would also become immortalized through Paul's letters to them in the Bible, the book of Galatians, following their conversion to Christianity. Unlike the Greeks and Romans, the Carthaginians on the whole had cordial relations with the Gauls, barring the usual raids or conflicts here and there. By the 300s BC, Gallic mercenaries had served in the Carthaginian forces for centuries. Carthaginian agents would negotiate with local chieftains who would pledge to supply a certain number of tribesmen for a campaign in exchange for cash payments, or younger warriors looking to make a name for themselves would travel overseas to take service under the Carthaginian generals. Gallic warriors always featured prominently in the Carthaginian armies during the Punic Wars, and they made up a substantial portion of Hannibal Barca's forces during his invasion of Italy and markedly contributed to his most resounding victories. Besides the steady stream of troops, trade flowed regularly between the two peoples, albeit mostly indirectly through the Greeks at Massilia and the Carthaginian colonies in Spain. Ever the businessmen, the Carthaginians knew a good thing when they saw it, and they likely viewed the Celts as providing a ready and cheap source of manpower, as well as a willing and eager market for their manufactured goods. The fact that the Gauls also had access to substantial gold mines in the interior likely didn't hurt either. From their long list of conquests and migrations, it is no surprise that the Celts were viewed as a disruptive and dynamic force in the Mediterranean. Besides working for the Carthaginians, the Gauls served in nearly every major Mediterranean army from the mountains of Spain to the banks of the Nile. Renowned for their ferocity and savagery, The Gauls typically shed their long-sleeved shirts and cloaks before battle, preferring to fight bare-chested with only their brightly colored checkered or plaid trousers. The bravest, known as the Gassetti, who were a type of professional warrior, fought completely naked save for their thick gold necklaces, known as torques, and bracelets, a thing strange and unheard of to the heavily armed Romans and Greeks. Typically, the Gauls fought with spears, square and oval shields, and swords with rounded tips intended for cutting or slashing rather than stabbing. Polybius reports that some of these Gallic swords would bend after the first blow in combat, forcing the wielder to stop and straighten out the blade with his foot. The Gauls would sometimes wear very tall bronze and iron helmets with winged or horned decorations to both add to their already towering height and to intimidate their enemies. Some, especially among the wealthy, wore good quality chainmail armor made up of thousands of metal rings, while others contented themselves with leather or bronze breastplates. Although the Gauls had originally fielded large numbers of wooden chariots, in their later years they substituted high-quality cavalry corps for their charioteers, and their horsemen were praised for both their skill and courage with the spear, sword, and javelin. Before engaging the enemy, the Gauls would blast music on bronze trumpets which rose vertically in the air, and terminated with the depiction of an animal, often a boar's head, their favorite symbol. Following this, they would charge furiously onto the enemy lines, hacking viciously with their swords and spears. The Greek historian Pausinius gives the following depiction of the Gauls in the Battle of Delphi after their invasion of Greece. They rushed at their adversaries like wild beasts, full of rage and temperament, with no kind of reasoning at all. They were chopped down with axes and swords, but the blind fury never left them while there was breath in their bodies. Even with arrows and javelins sticking through them, they were carried on by sheer spirit while their life lasted. Some of them even pulled the spears they were hit by out of their wounds, and threw them or stabbed with them. Another Greek historian, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, condescendingly observed that the Gallic manner of fighting, being in large manner that of wild beasts and frenzied, was an erratic procedure, quite lacking in military science. Thus, at one moment they would raise their swords aloft and smite after the manner of wild boars, throwing the whole weight of their bodies into the blow, like hewers of wood or men digging with mattocks. And again they would deliver crosswise blows aimed at no target, as if they intended to cut to pieces the entire bodies of their adversaries, protective armor and all. Due to their lack of discipline, their tendency to fight naked, and their devotion to heroic acts of bravery rather than sound strategy and tactics, the Gauls often suffered heavy casualties in their conflicts with the better equipped Romans and Greeks. Nonetheless, in several encounters, the Romans and Greeks were bested by the Gauls, who were sometimes able to overcome the more disciplined armies through brute strength and numbers alone. Regardless of the result, they were always an unsettling and feared force on the battlefield, and we can imagine that, for all their snobbery, the Romans and Greeks had many sleepless nights due to their ferocious neighbors to the north. Besides their behavior in battle, the Gauls were also known as headhunters, and they would often decapitate their fallen enemies to obtain trophies. These heads were typically preserved in resin and exhibited proudly to guests. In addition to this, the Gauls found other creative uses for their trophies. One grisly report states that the Boii, a Celtic tribe inhabiting what is now the Czech Republic, took the skull of a vanquished Roman general and turned it into a sacrificial cup dedicated to their gods such practices did little to endear them to their neighbors. For all their fierce and undisciplined nature, recent archaeological studies have shown that the Celts were far from being the savages dressed in animal hides they are often portrayed as. Celtic society was highly organized, with each tribe or confederation of tribes having a king or oligarchy of nobles, along with a priestly caste known as the Druids. Below the nobles and priests would be the freemen, mostly farmers and craftsmen, and then the slaves. The nobles were often very wealthy and well-educated, especially in the later periods following extensive exchange with the Romans and Greeks. Celtic women seem to have played a larger role in public life than their counterparts to the south, sometimes being allowed to deliberate in the councils of the men. Warrior queens such as Boudica of the Iceni show that they could sometimes openly wield political power, although this was usually the exception rather than the rule. The Celtic druids were a particularly powerful, influential class, and they would have been highly educated men, although much of their learning has been lost to us. According to Julius Caesar in his Conquest of Gaul, the Druids maintained an oral tradition where they memorized a substantial amount of poetry detailing Celtic history and mythology. The list of memorized topics was apparently so long that it often took a novice 20 years of study before he was ready to become a full-fledged Druid. In addition to their position as record-keepers, the Druids also periodically gave lectures and debates on astronomy, geography, natural philosophy, and religion, as well as serving as teachers to the youth of the tribe. They were responsible for the sacrifices to the Celtic gods and for foretelling the success or failure of certain events. And according to Caesar, they were also the principal judges in legal matters. Every year, the Celts would gather in central Gaul to submit their disputes to a kind of supreme court made up of Druids, giving these priests an almost international significance in the Celtic community. Gallic settlements were also far from primitive. The earliest habitations centered around heavily fortified hill forts, and although these continued up until the Roman conquests, the Gauls developed large oppida, or city-state-like settlements. These cities would often be well-organized and well-defended, with earth-filled walls covered by an outer layer of stone. These oppida served as centers of power for the local noblemen, and gold coins would often be minted and distributed from here. Within the walls, craftsmen would make highly elaborate and beautiful goods under the protection of the local elites. The Gauls were particularly famous for their skill in metalworking, and they were especially adept at working iron. They produced many elaborate and delicate works made out of more precious metals, which show great skill and craftsmanship. They primarily worked in gold, for Celtic lands were rich with gold mines, but they also used bronze and, to a lesser extent, silver. The Celtic smiths produced intricately decorated gold necklaces, bracelets, brooches, bowls, and sword scabbards during this period, with most of them being decorated with elaborate and fanciful patterns. I have posted pictures of some of these works on the website, and I recommend you follow the link in the description to take a look at the beautiful craftsmanship if you get a chance. Diverging from Greek and Roman art, the Celts preferred ornate geometric designs with rigid symmetry over-representing people or animals in their work, although later they incorporated Hellenic and Roman-style figurines in their designs during what is known as the Latin period of Celtic culture. Besides their beautiful artwork, the Gauls were also prolific traders, trading tin, copper, gold, livestock, salt, grain, and cloth for luxury goods, especially Greek wine, from the south. True to the Gauls' reputation as heavy drinkers, the largest drinking vessel of antiquity was found in northern Gaul. Coming in at 5 feet 4 inches in height and weighing an impressive 450 pounds, this huge bronze vase could hold just short of 300 gallons of wine. Countless smaller wine vessels have been found all over Celtic lands, implying that maybe they did have an immoderate drinking problem to some extent. As we saw in the early episodes, the Carthaginians traded with the Gauls through their colonies in Spain and along the Atlantic seaboard, most often seeking access to the tin of the British Isles. The Gauls also traded with the Germanic tribes to the northeast for amber, which was highly prized as a gemstone for jewelry, following the famed Amber Road, which stretched from Russia to the Mediterranean. Even remains of silk from as far away as China have been discovered in Celtic tombs, proving that the Gallic world was far more interconnected with international trade than their status as so-called barbarians would lead us to believe. In all, the Gauls stand out as a unique and paradoxical culture and people among Mediterranean civilizations. On the one hand, they were brutal, fierce, and unruly. On the other, they could be generous, courageous, and genial. Steadfastly devoted to their homes, families, and communities, even in the face of overwhelming odds. Their great physical stature and Herculean strength made them respected mercenaries, but their predatory raids and migrations proved to be a nightmare to their more civilized neighbors. Possessing densely populated cities, Producing finely crafted works of art, and plying a vigorous trade with their neighbors, they are hardly worthy of the epithet of barbarians which the Greeks bestowed on them. Their foreign customs and wild natures perhaps made their clash with Rome inevitable, but their heroic resistance and reckless courage in the face of final defeat are worthy of remembrance. In spite of Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul in the first century B.C., the Celts' exquisite artistic style, their lofty spirit, and even their language far outlived their political relevance. And even today, remnants of Celtic culture can be felt in places like Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and Brittany. Such were the Celtoi in 300 B.C. Next time, we move east to discuss the position of the squabbling Greek successor kingdoms before finally returning to take a look at Carthage's greatest nemesis, Rome. Until then, take care and read more history.